0: We went to an Italian food trade show with a fake Italian meat brand called This Is Italy. uh, And we were serving our sausages and our lardons and all our pork products. We caught these Italians on hidden camera, basically saying, yeah, you know, I I won't do the accent because I'll get cancelled. But, you know, I know about the quality of meat. My parents were pig farmers and their parents were pig farmers. And this meat is phenomenal.
1: That's Andy Shovel, the co-founder of This, a plant-based food company. They're the fastest-growing meat alternative brand in the UK. After launching in 2019, they were recently valued at £150 million. Now, this is known for its provocative marketing campaigns, which Andy says takes the seriousness out of the arguments for choosing vegan food. But he and his co-founder, Pete Sharman, didn't always want to help people eat less meat. In fact, before this, they ran a burger delivery service. What made them change course? Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. As a founder myself, I try to ask the right questions so you can find out what it really takes to build a startup. I met Andy when we were both crowdfunding our businesses in 2019. Online, in fact, it's worth saying that we're literally social media friends having yet never met IRL but talk on every social platform out there regularly. Now, after seeing the crazy growth that this has achieved, I wanted to get him on the podcast to find out how he's done it. And also partly just to add another medium we'll have spoken on whilst avoiding having to spend time with him in real life. Andy is direct and honest, and you need to be pretty gutsy to make stunts your main marketing strategy. He developed a strong sense of independence from a young age.
0: I made the unusual decision when I was thirty. well, when I was 12 of um, lobbying really hard to go to boarding school because I felt it would be better for me. My parents were divorced and I wasn't really enjoying it. And I thought it would be better for me to be um, away. So I kind of elected to um, leave home when I was about 13 and go to school after school. It was a very full time boarding school. It wasn't one of these like come back at weekends and then have been extremely fiercely independent, probably to a fault um, since then, to be honest. I didn't much enjoy boarding school for the first couple of years. Felt quite homesick, which is kind of confusing because I wasn't really like loving it back there anyway. And then um, uh, kind of found my niche towards the end and uh, and had a good time. And, and, and you leave a place like that with um, some quite unusual qualities um, and some good and helpful and some not so helpful and quite destructive. <laughs> um, so it's quite given what, objectively speaking, given what a small percentage of the population go through that, uh, type of school um, it is quite an edge case it's quite unusual and therefore produces probably quite an unusual type of person for for good or worse and so yeah academically I was I was uh, proficient uh, but but ultimately like I had that classic report always of like high potential absolutely isn't fulfilling it whatsoever um, and um, and that remained the case really throughout uni as well um, I knew from quite a young age that I wanted to be a founder, and I knew that I didn't really need academic credentials um, to get there. But but that's not an example that I would like to set for other people, obviously. But that's just the case for my for myself.
1: How how do you know you want to be a founder? Like, what any influence in the family? Any friends? What was that? Where did that come from?
0: Yeah, really fair question. I can't put my finger on it to be honest. I just. I just knew that firstly I didn't want to work for anybody else because I was I, I never got expelled, but I was never like super well behaved. Yeah, I didn't do drugs or or never like bullied anyone, but um I would just not turn up to a lot of like I went to like three lectures in three years at uni. I was really bad. Um and I just used to turn up to exams and just like fluke it. And then and then at school it was very, very uh, strict in terms of like, you must not leave the premises. Um, and I just used to go off to different cities, to London, to different cities, like just all the time for days. And just, I I wasn't good. And, um, I also used to be, um, uh, so I am really into impressions and doing accents and stuff and, and, and I'm decent at it. And I used to phone up other teachers and like impersonate them. Um, and then have like full on conversations between teachers when it was just me and the teacher, um, and stuff like that. So, so that, that all amounted to having more fun. I think this
1: art of impressions still got it.
0: I can give you Andy Murray. Yeah, go on. So I was at a tennis tournament as a spectator, obviously. And, um, uh, I saw Andy Murray on a staircase and I absolutely couldn't resist, but, but try. So I went, uh, Andy. And he went, oh yeah, okay. And I went, um, look, I've been told I'd do a really good impression of you. Um, I'm really sorry, but that's the case. And he just went, okay, go ahead. So I was like, well, obviously it's really good to meet you and be here talking to you. And, um, you know, it's sort of once in a lifetime and he just burst out laughing. He was like, oh my God, it sounds exactly like me. <laughs> um, And he like called his team over and he was like, guys, come here, come here. So his, like his physio and, and his, uh, you know, whoever else was in his entourage came over and they were like, what, what? And he was like, listen to this guy. So I was like, hi guys. It's good to see you. I mean, obviously we see each other every day. They were all laughing. It was basically the best moment of my life.
1: (laughs) Bring it back as I need to, to life after university. You always wanted to be a founder. So you ever had a job? Uh, yes, I worked at
0: McDonald's, but, um, the first job I had, I started the day I left university, actually, um, a friend of mine's family started a, uh, ready to drink cocktail company. I decided to leave that to start a recruitment business. Uh, the rationale just being that, um, you know, what can I start without any money? Cause I didn't really have any money at the time. Um, so with about 500 pounds, I mean, it sounds a bit like a cliche, but with about 500 pounds or so, I started recruitment squared um, which was a, a graduate focused recruitment company. Um, and, um, and then I did that for, uh, about just under three years, um, which was basically hardcore telesales, um, which really taught me a lot. Um, it was quite humbling as well. And, um, and yeah, that was a very small business and, you know, I only, I got it to a revenue of like, about 150 grand or so, and and um, but I was 21 when I started it, so I was very young and inexperienced, and I I um, ended up having a part a business partner who who came on as a sort of team member and then became a partner, and then eventually he bought me out, um, and uh, and that was really convenient because um, I wanted to go off and do other things, and he had a vision to take Recruitment Squared somewhere, so um so yeah, I got bought out after about three years. So that was my first kind of mini exit, I guess.
1: Yeah, Recruitment Root Squared. What was the root... recruitment square? Yeah. What was the what was the... Yeah, I was making a root square joke because you got bought out, so I was trying to reverse it back into some oh, really intelligent we... joke.
0: I forgot that you're a dad, and and this is mandatory.
1: This kind yeah, of stuff. Absolutely. This <laughs> is, this is my terrible. Attempt, gags. My attempt to get a smile on your face. and <laughs> um, Obviously, going to be harder work with you than you know most guests who are just polite, mate. Anyway. Um, so um, talk to me about that. Like how, how much money? Like what do you do with it? Like, you know, 21 year old having money is a big deal. I was 24, 25 before I had like a small amount of money for my first thing. And I just remember it is just like the best fucking thing ever. Uh,
0: I think it was about 100 and I don't know. It was 110, 120K or something. Yeah. Um, and I think of that, I got like so. 70 80k (laughs) it's like essentially like a a good bonus for a for a young city worker or something but at the time I was quite happy with it and I bought a used Porsche Boxster and I thought I would get a girlfriend and I didn't but um I did I did I love cars anyway so it was nice to indulge that passion
1: okay so you've had a little exit and um, you're feeling proud of yourself, presumably young and a little bit smug. What do you like? What are you doing? What are you ruminating on? What are you thinking about with your extra seat next to you?
0: Yeah, funnily enough, actually, um, I was it was the only time in my life immediately after that uh, moment when when I was, I think, depressed. Um, so it was far from far from feeling um, smug. Actually, I, I, I didn't want to leave my room. I just stayed in my room for uh, at one point about three weeks, just really didn't leave, went to the loo, nipped over to the shop maybe. And I was properly depressed, I think, at that time because I had absolutely no idea what to do next. And it really freaked me out and I felt lonely and all my friends had stable jobs um, and it was a real, real low point, weirdly. Um, not, not like I had another exit uh, a few years later and that was a very different experience and I was on a high for a while and it was just, yeah, not the same. Um, what, what got me out of it was, was finding direction essentially because my, I've never really thanked him enough for this actually, but, um, my godfather, um, he was like, look, I'm going to take you out. Maybe he heard I was down or something. I'm going to take you out for lunch to a new startup that I have. Um, invested in called Coco de Mama, which is now a, a decent sized Italian chain, uh, and it was the first site, and it was I think only a couple of months after opening. And Dan Land was there, and he was founder, and he was like um, running around, looking very dynamic and very engaged and having fun. And I was looking around. I never really had an exposure to a, a new food business. I'd only ever been in like chains or long independent, long-standing independent restaurants, like or whatever. And I was really excited suddenly, and I was sitting there having um a sandwich or whatever and i was like wow this is a really cool environment this is something i can really get on the end of it and just look quite rock, rock and roll and I, I i then basically resolved that i was going to have a uh, food based business i was going to have a restaurant based business and um and that gave me direction so it sort of got me out of my of my lull and um but then, so then I basically tried to think of a niche and an idea that, that didn't already exist in restaurants, which would be next to impossible now, but back then it was slightly less saturated. And I realized at the time that you couldn't get a good, uh, burger delivered at home. Um, and I was doing a lot of networking, trying to find a co-founder because started recruitment squared on my own, um, <laughs> recruitment route squared. And, um, uh, it was a bit, it was a bit lonely, uh, time. So I wanted to get a co-founder. So, so did loads of networking and along the way I met Pete who um, I've now been co-founders and sort of best friends with for the last 11 years or so um, and um, and together we, we uh, founded chosen bun which was a, a burger focused delivery takeaway business and we had a fleet of um, I don't know 15 20 bikes motorbikes and electric bikes uh, servicing the South southwest London area uh, central London area and and um, it was really successful for a, for a small business and um, uh, we were very, very, very hands-on the workload was incredibly intensive. Uh, the hours we were doing were like abs- absurd. Um, and, um, and to be honest, it was quite a rock and roll sort of lifestyle. I, I really, I really actually enjoyed it. Looking back, had some awful moments, but, um, but enjoyed it.
1: That's so interesting. And, and, and like, what is it about, so obviously this is a really interesting thing cause you're like, I wanted a co-founder cause I found it quite lonely and um, what was it about Pete that clicked what kind of skills were you looking for that he did have
0: we had quite a romantic start to our partnership actually because when we met he had a job offer pending from a um ice cream or ice lolly startup and he had 8 days or 7 days to get back to them so me and Pete ended up meeting every night uh from like 6 p.m. to like 11 p.m. like super intense across the week um, to try and establish whether we'd be a good fit. In terms of what clicked, the first couple of nights I was like, I didn't think he was all that. Um, because he's so um modest and and uh um reserved and and he doesn't he doesn't say anything unless it really needs saying and he's just he's like the opposite of me. I'm constantly trying to convince everyone how clever I am by being all verbose and and trying to be quick witted. And Pete's the opposite where where he's actually far more brilliant than he, than he seems, uh, probably. And so, so the first couple of nights I was like, Oh, maybe he's not that sharp. And then, um, we, I started to realize that, um, we had, uh, our skill sets were in completely different lanes. And, and I think that's a really good formula for a successful business partnership. Um, he likes, and is good, very good at like quite, I would say quite boring stuff. Like finance and operations and how things work, and he was an engineer by training, and and I am and better at and enjoy more the fluffy stuff like um, brand and marketing and and uh, you know perhaps sales and and stuff like that.
1: I think it's such an interesting thing because obviously you know I have a, a similar thing with my business partner uh, Heights Joel, where we do just have very different skills. And that's why, you know, we've been able to do multiple companies together, because what gets me out of bed isn't what gets him out of bed. And the stuff that I find boring, he finds interesting and vice versa. And you're never going to be able to split all of the things across two people. And actually, as I'm sure we can get onto with your story, you know, as a company scales, uh, it's kind of becomes irrelevant anyway, because you should be hiring other people to do all of them. But in the early days, it's bloody handy having a really good split between what you both find interesting for at least the first couple of years.
0: Yeah, for, for sure. Although I do think it's very unbecoming for you to plug your own startup. This is my moment, my podcast. <laughs> um, Such so. a good point.
1: Um, and my co-founder <laughs> over yours. Um, yeah, we should get we should get onto the, the main event then. Um, well, before we get into this, which is, of course, the the main course, let's go back to the starter. Talk to me a little bit about chosen bun. Like, you know, what was the high level of this? Can we talk about stomachs filled or whatever marketing quip you'll use to just explain revenue in a annoying way? Cows murdered is surely the right thing for a vegan business right now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. How much CO two did you fuck us with in the in the environment?
0: I was quite generous with CO two back then, um, and and I'm regretful of of, of the damage. Uh, that, that to be honest, gen, gen, genuinely regretful that I was, that I was involved in. Uh, essentially, committing like cow genocide, um, and and I, and nowadays I, I feel quite passionately about our mission, and, and I am mission driven. So it's a black mark against my name, but I hopefully am undoing some of the damage now. But um, but yeah, we 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 were doing um, uh, about uh, well twenty twenty five, uh, sometimes thirty grand a week revenue. Um, so what's that? One and a bit million a year. Um, and um, and then we had a couple of other sites lined up for expansion, and, and our main investor was a very large fast food operator, they're, they're the, one of the biggest fast food franchisees in, in Europe, actually. They bought our business. That They thought it would slot into their operation, and, and I also was quite motivated to get rid of it because I could see Deliveroo becoming an ever more present uh, and quite destructive force for, for our type of business that was delivery-focused.
1: And can you share how much? Like what kind of ballpark? What you did? Um Yeah, I'll
0: I'll still be respectful of our of our um uh, confidentiality, but I, I would say I I was twenty nine and I I made over a million pounds myself and that was like a cool a cool milestone. Um because I had actually said um it's a bit vulgar to talk about this, but since you asked it-
1: so it's actually helpful, just just as an FYI, and I think it's really interesting, and mm. I know I'm interrupting you mid-flow, but just to put some perspective on you, That's right. Um, how often do you genuinely hear entrepreneurs being honest and open about this stuff? And I think the answer is just like not enough because we assume it's vulgar. It's actually genuinely really helpful to know in real terms and real worlds, what does happen, how much those things are, how it has an impact. Otherwise, it's just all hidden and very blasé, Six figures, seven figures, nine figures. It's like I, just, I can't really get any learnings from this. Sadly, that's my my opinion.
0: That's really fair, and I wouldn't really counter that. I suppose there's just something inherently a bit ugly about some posh bloke sitting there going, "Yeah, I was
1: a millionaire." Sure, sure. <laughs> like, pretty vile. Sure. but well, I we, see your we point. We passed and, that and, bridge um, when you said the Porsche Boxster, so you're done. For.
0: <laughs> I did say used Porsche Boxster. Okay, he- sure. heavily used? It was li- it was lived in. But anyway, so so um. Uh, yeah, so, 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 it was, it was, you know, I was able to go into my bank and, and pay off my mortgage with chip and pin. Like it was, it was financial freedom for a young person. It's not like, let's buy a yacht and retire to like the Maldives, but it was enough. It was enough that for me at the time at 29, I could, I could do sensibly whatever I wanted, right? I couldn't go off and, and, and you know, party like 50 cent, but I, I, I had a, I had a great uh, sense of financial freedom.
1: How long did you spend, like, um, trying to figure out what to do next? Like, so How do you, and I think this is so interesting for me personally, is this period between, again, if I bring it back to Heights, very different story, but we, you know, we we failed our last business and needed to do something else because of, of bills and the itch, but also this is a real need. You guys are in a very different situation, which is you just had some success and, it can actually be quite dangerous. It can obviously, like, it can create a sense of laziness. You know, too much time passes, motivation goes, inspiration passes. All of these things, and especially in the case of your co-founding relationship, sometimes those paths can diverge if not held together. So, how did you approach all of this?
0: Yeah. yeah so, so well, for, for for clarity, I mean, we didn't make enough money that that, that complacency or anything would be an issue. You know, we, we made enough to buy a. Uh, a three-bedroom house outright in central London. You know, like, not not like retirement. Let's chill. Money. We we didn't. That wasn't an issue with us. We were very hungry. We were twenty-nine, and I'm or Pete's thirty-two or something. And so we we what we did was embarked on a very very I think quite professional and regimented approach to finding our next gig. To elaborate, we we would meet at mine at nine a.m. and it would be quite. Prompt, you know, it would be like we had a job. So you come around, we would work solidly uh until about 6 p.m. So we had a full working day. Uh, and essentially we would go through a cycle, and this lasted about a year to be honest, like maybe just under. We went through a cycle of, of coming up with an idea either spontaneously or just doing some internet research or just finding inspiration. Come up with an idea. So, okay, let's create a branded men's men's barbershop chain. Uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily exist at scale. And then we would do a PNL. Um, we would stress test the idea in other ways. We'd phone tons of people in the industry. We'd make meetings. We'd absorb as much as we can. We'd go and get haircuts. We'd stand outside with a clicker. We, we were very um, thorough uh, and, and um, structured with how we went about it. And then we would just keep testing, keep stress testing, and then eventually find a reason that was fundamental enough for us not to pursue that idea. And we did that. For loads of stuff. And the the downside is that I lost it, you know, nine months a year of my life. But the upside was I have really great, like, um, niche knowledge of all these different businesses. (laughs) And then eventually we sort of circled back to food um, because uh, we realized that almost everything else is quite harebrained. The most harebrained was probably that we were going to try an Elon Musk and start an electric car company. We went to speak to these guys who had started. Uh, an electric actually no sorry it wasn't electric but it was a small uh, sort of artisanal car company and we went to just learn about their experience and it ended up being this pivot from them halfway through where they were like begging us for investment and it and i felt so bad for them but it was quite evident that it was just such a difficult journey so we we then um circled back to food and we realized that in the uk um the meat free options for meat reducers people who still liked eating meat that the options were in our opinion, really compromised and really limited. So there were like legacy brands, which had been around a long time and weren't really innovating super fast. And then we, um, uh, went to the States, we tried Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and we were like, wow, like technically speaking, there's a lot of work that can be done. Look at what these guys have done. We can, we can go in a different lane and do something else. And so we came back pretty energized from that and, and decided to, um, get cracking on, on R and D basically.
1: You go to America. You taste these beyond an impossible. I guess what I don't understand is, you know, what makes you go, all right, well, we can do a better version of this for the UK market, as opposed to the sensible answer, which is, well, I guess they'll be coming over here soon. Cars seem a bit expensive and off-putting. Sure. Correct. Good assumption. But by this point, Impossible have raised one hundred and twenty or more million because that's also very expensive and very difficult process to get right. So it's not orders of magnitude easier to do what you are trying to approach. So how do you get going, and what makes you think you can do it?
0: Well, we we proved actually that that you don't need hundreds of millions or even tens of millions to get products to market successfully. We had we had conviction at the time that we could be resourceful and bring out market leading products with with very little money and that's what we did and we basically took this to market with about 900k um and so you know we we were seeing these companies raise tens hundreds of millions and we were like kept on scratching our heads like why do they need so much money and in the end we just chalked it up to like silicon valley-ness and and um and we decided that that we could do it more resourcefully um and which we did and we subsequently raised more money but but still we were very resourceful at the start and in terms of your question like why did we reach that conclusion that we could do a better job in the uk um well i suppose i suppose we felt that we could go in a different direction at the time beyond meat and impossible foods just did a burger and we uh concluded that actually if you were gonna and be a market leader in the uk uh, or anywhere you had to come out with a wider suite of products than just one and because they were quite early to the scene um, impossible and beyond managed to pull off this strategy of just having one product and get it in TechCrunch every week and get it in Blumbo and get just get it talked about and, and it was it worked for them and it, it gave them great access to capital but we thought that it was riskier to do that and it would be a, a more prudent play for us to um, to, to, to give different need states uh, coverage in, uh, and make sure that people could have a one-stop shop eventually for, for all their plant-based needs. Um, and, and in the end, I'm pleased we did that. Um, but so, yeah, it's not quite as simple as, as, you know, let's let's decide to go right up and butt heads with Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. They, they just had one product and we were going to make different products. And we also felt that they wouldn't come super quickly to the UK, which has ended up being the case.
1: Yeah, it has. And that's obviously one of those gambles that, you know, has actually paid off because it gave you time to get some market share and figure things out. Um, Here's what I don't get. So Andy, the, um, you know, with the McDonald's training experience, flipping burgers, making burgers, doing chosen bun and Pete, the I'll do everything boring. Don't worry about it. Andy just fucking jazz hands and get this to market. I get that. (laughs) But, you know, who's the food scientist here? Who is creating um, tasty food out of thin air? Like, how does a business like this? And I've always wanted to know this, always wanted to ask you this, but how does a business like this create a product that's not garbage?
0: Well, I'll I'll dig my own grave and answer your questions. So so enable, I'll give a how-to to to all the keen, plucky food food entrepreneurs out there so I can go out of business.
1: Yeah, but they'll be sitting there thinking, "God, this isn't going to come to Belgium, is it? We've still got time."
0: <laughs> well, we we're, we're coming, Hubert. We're so don't don't copy us. Um but um I'm sure it's not the only prescription, but our, our approach was basically um we hopped on to Google Scholar and we started to look at um Lots of academic work in um, plant based food texture work and, uh, you know, colloids, your fats. And we just, we just did a deep dive uh, into what academically was, was uh, the gold standard uh, and who as well, who was, who was at the leading edge of this work. So did that. Uh, Learn about the the science of it, and remember, Pete's also a pretty pretty keen scientist and engineer. So we then contacted uh, a bunch of people from that work who were doing the the most exciting uh, research work. Met a lot of people as well. So we flew to different places around Europe, like plant based substitute factories we met the factory owners we got facts and figures and insights from them we went to research institutes around europe who were focusing on plant based and we got meetings and we said we're starting this brand you know can we come meet you so it was it was just grafting like tr- trying to trying to absorb as much from experts as possible over the over the period of months during that time concurrently we started working using a lot of the same network that i've just described we we started pr- uh, producing and iterating our own samples so we could get prototypes to show investors. We sort of ran that work stream alongside just becoming experts ourselves in the field. Um, and then eventually, uh, we started a separate work stream of creating this really thorough business plan or, or deck. Um, and we did that uh, and we tried to make it as well researched as possible. It was called Not Meet uh, back then as well, not this. A funny story where we had to, well, not that funny actually, but it's a story where we had to change the name. So we had we, we met some investors and we met them in the Chosen Bun days, and they said to us, "Make sure you come to us with the next idea." Time passes, sell Chosen Bun, you know, start start work on not meat, which is now known as this. And I remembered, oh my god, we got to go to them because we said we would, um, and so we did. So I emailed them the the business plan. And they said, "Great, come and meet meet us." And there was them and this other lady there who we hadn't met before. And they start grilling us on the business, and we're like, "Great!" And it went really well, and they were incredibly excited. So we thought, "Great, we'll bag some investment." We then didn't hear from them for a couple of months, and I I then randomly about eight weeks later was doing a trademark search to file for not meat. Obviously, I should have done it originally, but I didn't. Anyway, this this woman's name comes up for registering not meat burger company and not beef this and all these trademarks and it was the woman that was sitting in the meeting with us who i had met before they've basically written down everything we told them got the deck and they were trying to to start a competitive company to us using our using our intel it was phenomenal so i was really cut up about it for a couple of days. And then Pete, Pete and I just, just decided to change the name. Um, and that, thank God we did, because I think this is such a great name.
1: It's very hard to come up with a name for a brand. And um, there's definitely a time period where choosing a popular word or something like this actually works really against you, because you just like get drowned out in the noise of everything else. You're impossible to search for. There's just a million different things and reasons why it's not good to be called this um and I've actually always thought about it with regards to your company because you've got a very um standout brand and you know outspoken PR strategy which ultimately I've always wanted to ask you something else now is is part of your strategy literally based on the fact that it was the only way you'd get awareness for the word this to even be found if people were looking for it or is that just de facto what you would always do anyway
0: yeah. So, so um, short answer is uh, no. We we would always try and I would always want us to have really cut through comms and, and marketing and PR. Um, but it was funny when 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 we first called it this, every single person was like, "Oh, you SEO, no one's going to find you," and uh, it was unanimous. Every single person would say that, and it was so straightforward for us to get uh, top of Google. Um, occasionally, we compete and we're second to the dictionary definition, but otherwise, we're always first. And I actually now have, have a thesis that, um, random adverbs and pronouns are extremely uncompetitive because you've got the dictionary and then nothing else. How many restaurant businesses are called when, (laughs) you know, or like, uh, it's like, I don't think they're competitive at all. Also, by the way, I don't think SEO is that important. Like how many people are buying our products because of the website? I don't know. Not that many probably. So, so, um, it ended up being a bit of a moot point, uh, for us and, um, and I love the word this. I love that it confuses people. I actually still love even three years on from when we launched, you know, I spoke to the, the law firm today, uh, our law firm and, and receptionist was asking me, you know, what the company name is. And I said this. And she went, what? And I went, this, T H. I actually just went, this. It's called this, the company. And I just like, it doesn't get old. I love that she's confused by it because it's just it elicits more going on in the brain than other names. It's great.
1: So am I right in thinking in the timeline, um, this launch is about 2018? It's about four years ago? Uh,
0: no, n- 19. We, we just turned three years old uh, last week right. or two weeks ago. So
1: 2019, um, obviously you and I were doing crowdfunding at a similar time, which is why we were sort of sharing notes and, and speaking about our experiences. But um, therefore, I know this is public information, but that's not to 17 million pounds in revenue in three years, which is obviously phenomenal. Um, talk to us a little bit about, um, firstly, what it feels like to sort of raise your ambition levels and really go at it compared to a chosen bun. you know, talking one and a half to, you know, 17 and three years, they're not really comparable journeys. So what has that been like as an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah. So, um, it's been fascinating. Um, it's been quite stressful when you, when you recalibrate your ambitions, um, as you describe, like you then, when you have a couple of flat months, it's like, The world is ending and it's very difficult to maintain perspective when you have been in a really high growth environment and everyone's been blowing smoke and, you know, everyone's very excited. So I found that quite challenging, actually. And then also um, there's been a huge learning curve in terms of becoming or trying anyway, trying my best to become a responsible, thoughtful um, people leader, because you know we did have about a team of thirty people or so in Chosenbun, but it was a very different environment. You know, it was, it was extremely hands-on and in a kitchen and on motorbikes, and you know, it was it was rough and 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 different type of relationships that that you had with people. You know, the kinds of HR problems we would deal with there would be people having sex in the freezer or whatever, or people you know having a fight um, on on the cheese cheese line or you know so so um uh that's been a big challenge for me because i'm an extremely impulsive person and i shoot from the hip verbally at all times and you can't do that when you are you know managing a team of now 65 people because you can disappoint you, you can disappoint people very quickly you can demoralize people very quickly and um i have this habit of just sort of vomiting out only the negative critical feedback for something because i'm not really i don't see the I see it a bit binary and I don't see the merits in, in saying, you know, well, this is great, but I just go, no, it needs this, this, this. And just uh, watching people's faces drop over the last couple of years is just, I've tried my best to, um, delete these tendencies, but it's been a big learning curve for me, that side of things and something I haven't experienced in the past.
1: Do you think you are a good people leader currently? Um, not
0: in some respects, no. Um, and, and, and so those respects would be like, uh, I'm quite disorganized and chaotic. I, I have a tendency to be quite inconsistent as well. So I'll perhaps concede to my, to my desire to be polite and say, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then I'll sleep on it and I'll come back the next day and be like, look, I'm sorry, I can't accept that, but I've already set the precedent the day before. And it's like so disruptive and demoralizing for people. So that's, that's annoying. I, I also um, I'm not very good at being cringe and I think to be a really good leader of a bigger team you've got to be really cringe and you've got to g people up in a slightly sort of American nauseating way and I I'm not very good at that because I like to try and be as real and candid as possible um, and so that's not my second nature is to do that and then I think in other respects um, if I may pat myself on the back was not very appealing but anyway I think I um I have a huge amount of empathy and compassion and I lead with that pr- pretty much. Apart from when I'm giving feedback on things in the heat of the moment, I've got my teams back and I think they know that. And I'm also very, very, very honest with the team as well, which I think is another important quality. So I don't hide them from any ugly information. I don't um, you know, give give them a cherry picked account of how, how trading has been or how anything's been. And I think I, I make them laugh at times, which
1: hopefully helps. And in terms of, you know, learning how to become better, do you have a coach? Do you have people around you? Do you request feedback? What's your process?
0: We've got a really deep, thorough uh, um, employee engagement survey. uh, And there's a big section on founders, which is always like a big old holding breath moment when you read that. Um, I've had a couple of like bad ones and a couple of much better ones recently. Um,
1: What did the bad ones say?
0: Um a lot of the things I actually just listed. So Andy's inconsistent. uh, He keeps changing direction and we don't know whether we're coming or going. Um, Andy is a bit negative and doesn't give us enough appreciation and gratitude. Um, Andy um, uh, is, um, what else? Um, oh, he's impossible to get hold of because he's t- too busy and he doesn't make enough time. But but whereas my deliverables are dependent on speaking to him, um, and stuff like that. That those are probably the, the the headlines.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you're a very uh, you, you know you're a very open person and stuff. But at the same time, I'm wondering, you know, on the basis of. A lot of the things you're saying, I'm wondering, is there an inner sensitivity to you? Is there a way to hurt your feelings? Like you said, you know, there's a holding breath moment, but is that the same as can feedback hurt you? Do you feel personally attacked ever from this stuff? Do you ever catch yourself being like, oh, wow, that hurt more than I was anticipating, actually?
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. When, when I got my, I would say I had one bad, you know, when I had sort of, I don't know, 15 comments about me that were negative. Um, I was absolutely devastated. I think I might have cried. I can't remember. I was really, really sad um, and, and felt personally attacked. And and I thought, like, God, I spend so much time and energy trying to make sure that the environment at this is is great for people and they are protected and everything else. And so I felt, yeah, super, super sad.
1: I've lost count of the amount of times I've shared content that you've done things to you know inspire my team. Obviously, we take a very different approach, but it's not to say that I don't utterly admire and more importantly, enjoy the shenanigans is the best way I would say it. Like the sheer shenanigans and fun that you put into the brand. Feel comfortable. This is your moment. Like, you know, talk about your favorite campaigns or things that will make our, our listeners laugh. I want you to do that. But I'd also love to know you know, any mishaps, any of them that have gone wrong um, and how that might have impacted you? Because I'm sure there must be stories with the amount of stuff you guys get up to.
0: It's it's all actually, it seems silly and lighthearted and it it kind of is, but it's also um, part of a quite calculated uh, attempt to sort of disarm people's negative preconceptions that they might hold about plant-based alternatives by by having a laugh um, and eliciting some shock and surprise. Um, I think we are sort of jarring people out of of a lot of the negative preconceptions that they, they might have had um, about vegan vegan food. So, so it's a very thought out strategy, even though it seems quite chaotic and, and haphazard. We've done a lot of fun stuff that I would say has worked and has cut through and got attention. So Um, and also personally selfishly I've just had fun making it it's it's my kind of thing like I'm the lead creative at the company and and I love I do love doing it Um, we we, someone found uh, one of my favorites was someone found uh, there was a village in the north of England or the middle of England called called corn spelt with a Q corn spelt with a Q our our main competitor I would say in the market and um, so uh, we decided to um, do an a p- quite comprehensive takeover of this town, Corn. Um, so we put a sign underneath Welcome to Corn saying sponsored by this. And um, we sponsored Corn FC football team. Got, got signage in the stadium sponsored their water bottles their footballs their shirts we supplied all the ca- catering for the football club uh, we sponsored their pub we sponsored their restaurants we sponsored their bingo hall basically everything like the 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 paper the branded paper in the fish and chip shop um it, like everything and so we made a video of that that was only about a minute edit or something but it showed what we'd done and, and it was such a laugh and and um, I sent an email to the CEO of corn, the day it came out just saying um i hope we're still friends and uh and he i didn't actually know him before but i just thought it'd be funny and he, he, he emailed me back uh, saying i've never been more scared of being sued actually he emailed me back just with a smiley face <laughs> that's <laughs> just, actually pretty ominous I uh, so ominous i was like we're dead like yeah. they are they are 100 suing us um wow i would hate that response Yeah. Yeah. So I spent a few like sweaty days just thinking I've brought the company down with this, but anyway, so we did that. Um, we, um, yeah, we've done a ton of stuff. We did a deep fake of the queen at the queen's speech time and we released that and she was talking about this. And so we did, we've done that. We, to be honest, the stunt, which I've just been working on, which is going to come out in the next couple of months is, is the riskiest and the, and the most high profile. Um, I've never, I've never been more nervous, I'd say about one of the stunts we've done than this one so so watch this space but um, I might be I might be uh um, <laughs> not so smug about these stunts in a couple of months let's see but the upside is this content we've made is absolutely amazing but um, some of the stunts haven't gone to plan um, so uh, one time a few months ago um, I thought it'd be funny to emboss on the bottom of a plastic meatball tray uh, for our isn't pork meatballs um, Uh, My name's Sam and I'm being held hostage in a meatball tray factory. Send help. And I've now learned why that isn't remotely funny. Uh, We got that caption from a caption competition on Instagram and and I picked the winner. So I do own it. It's my fault. Um, But the the, the, uh, Yorkshire Police got involved uh, and then Special Branch, uh, which is the, um, whatever they are, the Specialist Branch of the Police Service for Serious Crimes. They got involved and actually came to our office in Hammersmith and did a sort of, I suppose, a mini raid. Uh, I wasn't there; otherwise, I would have apparently been taken away. And um, and so it was quite a serious thing. And 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 the retailers uh, were quite rightly very annoyed with us that we had given them this exposure to risk. And um, the the police actually contacted some of our retailer partners as well. The whole thing was an absolute. Uh, shit show so i had to be very contrite for very many weeks to all of these retail customers of ours and then the real ass of this was taking the tray out of circulation was actually really difficult because it had gone into all of our different depots all of our different retailers and it was like tracking them down we had to we had to do like skype calls of people in like freezing cold cold storage rooms and like finding the <laughs> it was just such a
1: nightmare so, um, it doesn't always go to plan. I love it. Uh, I'd love to know, um, they say PR isn't that measurable, et cetera, but I think when you're doing stunts and stuff like this, it probably is. And I think even more so if it's your core strategy. So tell me like how much of this is revenue impact scale, everything has been based on this high risk, high reward, potentially, depending on your answer strategy
0: yeah so so i would credit a great deal of our uh, early traction to uh, the pr stunts and the social um, growth off the back of that um and, and they're quite symbiotic in a sense the the pr and the social because you end up getting more and more of a social following by doing this stuff and then through the social platforms especially instagram we would actually get very serious um customer inquiries through Um, so, so, you know, we've had millions of pounds of revenue through Instagram, you know, a buyer at a certain supermarket chain is saying, Hey, I work for X supermarket and I've seen your corn stunt and I want to stock you. So, so I would say up until now, a really, really great deal of our, of our success has been down to, to that strategy. It's also been incredibly cost-effective. I mean, each of these stunts might cost us between like five and 15 K, and if you compare the amount of investment you'd have to put towards above the line, you know, TV or uh, radio or whatever, um, if you compare the amount of sort of impressions you might get from, I don't know, a two million pound campaign, I would probably challenge that that the PR that we have generated is far more um, has has get garnered far more impressions than that. So it's been very cost effective. How having said that. We're now in a period of change where we're going to start introducing more grown up, above the line uh, marketing channels. So we're hoping to go into TV and big digital campaigns, outdoor campaigns. Hopefully we'll still keep the content really playful and on brand and and consistent. But but we are now pivoting towards not just PR stunts.
1: Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, an investor a couple of days ago. Um, talking about you know heights is currently at five million to get to ten million I think we need to do the same but to get from ten to hundred I was like what's the big what's the big difference like what do I need to know, and he said at ten to a hundred. Um, your job as a founder is about instilling change into the company. Everything is about change. Everything needs to change. It's all much more mass markets, change, change, change. What do you think about that insight? Would you say, because you're in that experience right now, going from 10 to hundred. So is that true?
0: Well, I'm still learning. It's first, the first part of the answer, but um, I, I, I think that's probably correct. It's, it's incredible how much harder it is now to initiate a change than it was a year ago or something, because, because you must be collaborative and, and you must uh, lean on the expertise of others that have joined the business. But, but in doing so, obviously you're much slower and more cumbersome. I've always had a bit of a bulldozer role at, at this and at my other startups as well. At the beginning, it's, it's, just it's, it's a predictable kind of bulldozer role of just like, you know, taking a blank canvas and just pummeling until something exists and, and and there's lots of resistance to that whether it's from investors or from other stakeholders or suppliers or whatever you need to push 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 and then i then went through a period of like uh being a bit confused in a way and having a bit of an identity crisis because i was like well i don't really need to push 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 so much anymore because we're a thing and now it's a different kind of challenge and now i think that period has passed and i now need to be a bulldozer again because Getting through positive changes uh, has become really quite difficult, in my opinion. And so now I'm trying to pull those again um, and just in a different way and more internally.
1: Um, Why would this fail at this point? you've, um, You've covered so many different risk factors off. You're stocked in pretty much every single place you'd want to be stocked. Could you still fail? Is there still a chance that this doesn't exist in ten years? And if so, what's the reason?
0: There's no complacency on my end. I mean, we're not out the woods by any means. You know, it's it's a very very competitive market. We are in one of the fastest changing, most competitive markets where money is pouring in from all corners. So the biggest risk to our existence is definitely the uh, uh, high. Uh, level of competition in the market. Um and, and that competition is from extremely well financed on the most part uh companies. So getting lost in that noise is our biggest risk for sure. Um another risk is is that um uh you know the the plant-based alternative market uh I believe is is going to keep growing forever and you know for the long term future. But it won't necessarily be straight line it might have flat bits and it might go up and straight and down and who knows so that's another risk because not being an extremely well-established company with extremely big margins we are sensitive to those uh, short to medium term macroeconomic risks Um, access to capital could dry up as well so that's another risk Um, there could be deal fatigue for plant-based companies that could affect us in the future if we need to raise large sums again which i hope we don't but if we do um you know, that's the thing. Another risk is at the moment, our margins are not where they are going to be in the future. So there's a big development area for us because uh, we have still quite a sort of juvenile supply chain relative to the the volume of product that we're sending out. Um, and there's a risk that that we don't realize all those savings in the future. And and that that's, you know, you, you can't be do- doing 20, 30, 40, 50 million of revenue with a really slim margin and you're just like hemorrhaging money. So lots and lots of risks, I would say. And there are things I feel good about as well. I feel good about our ability to deliver world-leading products from a technical perspective, from a taste and and texture perspective. I think we will, as long as there's air in my lungs and air in Pete's lungs, I feel confident that we will deliver uh, outstanding products to the market.
1: Yeah, with a very healthy ratio of oxygen and CO2, all thanks to you. Um, Okay, so I've got an actual laugh out of you for that one. Thank you. Uh, Very generous. So you're feeling you're you're basically (laughs) interference. Yeah, it's getting late. Okay, so, (laughs) um, so yeah, 150 million pounds in three years is pretty remarkable. Um, what does success look like? When are you happy?
0: Um, well, I think I think you know. The, there's a degree of speculation in, in the way that early stage businesses are valued in general. And that, that does also apply to us. We have to grow into that valuation. So uh, I wouldn't say I'm happy or feeling complacent about that at all. Um, I, I would I rather would your be... shares were
1: overpriced than your food. Cause you know, <laughs> guys got to eat.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I honestly couldn't tell you that. I, I don't I don't think I can picture a moment where I f- sit back in my chair and I think you know job done, clap my hands together and and you know happy happy happy. I I operate on on one mode which is which is to go out and try and get it and and um, and that's how I am and and so I don't know I can't picture myself. I think I was I did have that sensation for a bit when I sold chosen bun when when P and I sold chosen bun that 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 did make me. It was a big milestone for me at the time to to, to earn that amount of money in under thirty. I'd always talked when I was younger about that, and I managed to do that, so that felt good. But but from here on in, I don't know. I I can't, I can't think of a scenario where I'd be super happy, clappy. To be honest, I, I I can have a laugh. I can be happy. I can I go on holiday. I'm happy. But when it comes to work, happy's not necessarily my mood.
1: No, ser- serious, serious, but serious to make a dent. Last question. So lots of listeners who will be inspired and admire your journey. What is a great piece of uh, advice that you have for them before embarking on a year zero to three, 150 million business and building your own uh, own enormous breakout brand? Um, f-
0: for those two to three people that will be inspired by listening to me, I would say um, one, one thing that Pete and I have always been quite good at um, I think relative to potentially other founders is, we're very, very, very quick to default to uh, experts in any given scenario. We are very, very quick to do deep dives on things with people that know lots and have lots of grey hair or no hair. So, so I would always recommend before you actually start your journey properly and, and, and start your company, go off and, and hustle really hard for meetings and airtime with people who have been around the block and and have have all the stressful moments over 20 30 years of their career so that you can learn from it, it sounds really obvious but it's amazing how many early stage founders i speak to who are like i'm going to start a um you know uh cbd tonic water or whatever and you're like okay great what stage are you at well i'm going i've started i'm fundraising i'm like okay who have you spoken to in the drink space and they're like, well uh no one I've just, it's unbelievable how many people just don't seek out the advice of experts and me and Pete have done that so much and it's been so helpful. So that would be my advice.
1: Amazing advice. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much, Dan.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders. Every
0: single person in my life up until that point, had told me, you know, maybe you should look at, you know, being an intern at this company because, you know, like, you're not that, like, good at anything else. And, and, you know, kind of talking to me like I was, like, a lost cause. And it almost fueled me, like, their words fueled me.
1: That's Daniela Pearson, who, at only 27 years old, was recently named one of the wealthiest women of colour in the United States. She is the founder of The Newsette, a women-focused newsletter company, which she launched at 19 and took from nothing to $40 million in revenue last year. She's also co-founded a mental fitness company with Selena Gomez, which was recently valued at $100 million. Find out how she did it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray surter It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stoloman.